0: That was Shannon Uton, our uh, everybody's favorite staff member. Besides Curtis, she uh, keeps this ship afloat. Um, everybody loves Curtis. I just have to say that every week. Glad you're back from Hawaii. <laughs> Thanks for showing up. <laughs> uh, we are going to read through the Bible uh, next year. Uh, So that's what we're promoting over these next couple months. We want you to consider it to get ready for it. Uh, As a church, we're asking everybody that would read through the Bible together with uh, the same plan. I'm going to preach through the pericopes, the sections of Scripture that we go through. And uh, we've got stuff for kids, we've got devotionals, we've got stuff for youth. As I told you last week, we even have a Bible light, a diet Bible reading plan, if you can't read the whole thing. But as Shannon pointed out, find your system. Uh, She likes to play it and then read it along with it. Um, But find the system, and let's see what God will do. Get ready for that. Uh, Let me pray, and then we will jump right in. And these um, are your prayers. These are prayers of the people. Uh, So I'll kind of lead you a little bit, but join with me uh, in praying for this church, congregation, world, and culture. Father, we pray along with Psalm 96, that we would have a new song to sing. You tell us in Psalm 40 that you uh, pick us up out of the muck and the mire and you put our feet on a rock and you give us a new song. And we pray uh, now, Father, that we would have this song that we've already sung, that we would bless your name. That whatever comes to us this week that we would say, God, you are good to us and you are kind and you are faithful, that we would declare your salvation every day, that we declare your glory to the nations, that we would talk about how marvelous your works are. And surely in this world that we live in, people need good news. They need gospel. They need to hear that there is a God who's sovereign, who's not shaken, who doesn't change like shifting shadows, that there is a God who has not abdicated his throne and reigns right now, that there is a Savior that hears our cries, who intercedes for us, that there's a Holy Spirit who somehow takes even our groanings when when we're so depressed or so frustrated or angry that we can't even get a sentence formulated that you take our groanings. And you understand those, and you make them known to our Father in heaven. So Father, we pray that we would honor you uh, with all the majesty and splendor that you have. We pray that we would be a church that's outward focused, not one that's trying to circle the wagons or protect but instead a church that's willing to give and sacrifice and go to the nations and go to our neighbors and go to the cubicle next to us and give people the good news of your word. We pray, Father, um, that this week we would enjoy you, that we would marvel uh, at what you've created in this world. And even as the temperature starts to change just a little bit, The seasons of our lives change all the time, but we pray that as the leaves fall, that we would enjoy your creation and that we would wonder at what you've made and of who you are. Expand our world beyond the uh, five-inch screen that's usually just 18 inches away from our faces expand our world beyond just the news reports we get give us hope again and give us glory and give us joy again and bring revival to our church to our city to our nation to this world make us sensitive to those who are hurting to those who lack uh, justice to widows to the fatherless to the orphans To the poor and to the needy and to the sick, either in body or in spirit, Christ, you came for them. And so may we be the hands and feet of Christ to them as well. Now as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that you'd help us uh, to do the work that we need to do, Holy Spirit, in our lives uh, to bring glory to Christ. We pray in your name, amen. James chapter 1, how does sin work? I'm going to read just verses 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Have you ever noticed how background music can change your emotions? It changes actually the way you think subconsciously. You don't even know what's happening. But if you're watching a movie and the music changes to suspenseful music or some kind of scary music and somebody opens the door to the basement, nobody thinks, yes. Go down there and let's see if we have more green beans. Nobody thinks that. Everybody thinks, don't go down. Don't go down the basement. Why? There's no dialogue. There's been absolutely zero dialogue. One door open to a basement, that's no big deal. It's the music. Or if there's this um, romantic comedy. I don't watch romantic comedies. I I don't know why. I can analyze that later. I just don't like them. They're too formulaic. I, I like love. I just don't like that. And there's a romantic comedies where the guy has some realization that the girl he's with is not the girl he wants to be with and there's this lively music that comes in. the girl's about to board a plane and he goes through the city and it's a 20 minute segment but you know exactly how it's going to end hurry up paying the taxi driver more than he should he gets there and he finds her and they hug and it's raining it's all the music right I mean you know it from the music you know it it goes on behind the scenes. It's the narratives behind us that changes your emotions, that tells you how you should think about a certain situation. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of things running behind the backgrounds of our lives. If you're old like me, you go on YouTube and you find out, what are the programs running on my phone that keep draining my battery? And they come up and you follow the YouTube thing and you say, "Okay, I don't want that running, I don't want that running, I don't want that running, I don't want that running. You turn them all off. If you're young, you just kind of know how to do that automatically. But there's always background programs running in our lives that drain us. Background programs running on your computer, running on uh, your phone that kind of drain you. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel like you're just so tired of all the narratives that are going on over and over and over in your lives. Uh, The narratives that we see all the way throughout scripture. For example, Saul, he had a narrative that ran throughout his life that caused him to commit suicide. You know what it was? It was a little song that the kids used to sing after David killed Goliath, and they started singing this little ditty, and here's how it went. Saul's killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands, and he couldn't get away from it And it kept playing over and over and over again. in every city he'd go to, that's what the kids would be singing. And the only way he could get rid of it was to get rid of David. And then when he couldn't get rid of David, the only way to stop the music was to get rid of himself. All of us have narratives that kind of run in the background of our lives. Things that we're believing that sin kind of taps into and uses. And these theological narratives, I think Jesus addresses. In the Sermon on the Mount, the the most famous sermon in the history of the world, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus kind of talks about these background narratives that we have. He says over and over again, the formula for the Sermon on the Mount is this. He says, you've heard it said, and then he tells them, this is the narrative that you've heard. This is what you've believed to be true. You've heard it said this, but I say to you this truth, You've heard it said this, this, and this, but I'm saying to you this, don't believe that narrative that you believe, that's just that program that's running in the background. Now believe this truth that I tell you. And so what's the narrative running in your life? What's the background music? What's changing your emotions and changing the way that you think? Maybe it's that time that you were fired and somebody said to you, you're lazy and you'll never amount to anything. Maybe it was growing up in a home where you could do no wrong and your parents said, you're perfect. You're the one we were longing for and now you don't know how to apologize because you felt like you've been perfect since your entire life. Maybe it was uh, uh, your dad or your mom that said, you'll never amount to anything. There's narratives that run in the background of your life that you have to address. If we were on a spiritual retreat and I'm actually tempted to do it, We should actually just pause the whole service right now, send you out along this campus, and say, take these things before the Lord and figure out by the Holy Spirit what he's saying to you. What's going on in your life? What do you believe about yourself that's not true? What do you believe about God that's not true? I don't know how to preach without being vulnerable, so I'll tell you some of mine. But I should say this to say, you don't need to take care of me. I have plenty of accountability. I have a lot of friends. I have a counselor. I have a wonderful wife. I'm fine. But the background narrative in my life is constantly this. Your wife would be better off if she was married to another guy. It's always going. And this church would be better off if they had a different pastor. Those are constantly going. And I know, I know they're not true. But they're constantly the narratives going on in the background of my life that I have to apply the gospel to? What's yours? What's the background narrative? What's the presupposition? What's going on behind the scenes in your life? Right now, there's a lot of fear, mainly in the uh, older generations. If I could just be honest, I don't see it much in the younger generations, but in the older generations, there's fear. This thing is all going to fall apart. Everything's going to go south. Nothing is going to be okay. The church is going to go completely liberal. All of America is going to you know, be completely gone in 20 years. For the younger generation, it's different. For the younger generation, it's generally apathy. Don't worry about trying to make a difference. You're never going to make a difference. Just play your video games just occupy yourself. Don't even go to college. Why would you even need to go to college? Why would you think that you could somehow impact this big world? You'll never make anything of yourself. It's a different narrative. But there's always narratives going on in our lives. And here in this text, we get these beautiful gospel truths. These narratives that we assume the opposite of. Because look at verse 12. It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. In other words, blessed means happy. Happy is the person who remains steadfast and doesn't sin. Who doesn't give in to temptation. That's what it's saying. Happy is the person who doesn't sin. That's opposite of the narrative that we hear. The narrative that's running on in the background of your life and mind is this. You're happy if you're sin. Sin is so fun. Why would God not let you do these things? I mean, these things please the flesh. These things give you so much joy. God doesn't want you to have joy. And trial is hard. And and, and why would you have to go underneath this temptation, all of these kind of things? That's what we hear. But what the gospel truth tells us is happy. Blessed is the person who stands up underneath this trial and doesn't sin. And then look at the next paragraph, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. God is good. Don't be deceived. Your God is good, and everything he gives you is a good and perfect gift. That's not the narrative that we hear that's running on in the background of our lives. The narrative we hear is this. If God was good, why would there be a hell? If God was love, Why would young kids get cancer? If every good and perfect gift is from above, then why would I have been abused? That we hear all those, God can't, don't be deceived. God is never good. That's the narrative that we hear that's behind us. But here, this scripture reminds us, the narratives that we hear that, oh, it's fun to sin, and God just doesn't want your joy, and God can't possibly be good and kind. Here he addresses both of those. Happy is the person who doesn't sin, who remains steadfast under trial. And then, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Your God is good, and every good and perfect gift comes from him. So let's just look at those two very quickly. First of all, blessed is the one who remains steadfast. I'm read just verse 12 again. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him, In other words, there's a recognition that there will be trials, but there's also recognition that there will be a reward. We're going to talk about this all of Advent, actually, so I'm going to not talk too much about this crown of life now, because all of Advent, we're going to talk about the reward that comes with the Christian life. But here he says, yes, you will have trials, and they will be temporary, and I will give you this crown of life. In other words, your light and momentary affliction are not worth comparing to the glory that will one day be revealed in you. The trial is going to last just for a second. Our lives are a mist. It will only happen for a limited period of time. Remain steadfast, and I will give you the crown of life. This gives us hope. I like what Vaclav Havel says. Vaclav's a brilliant individual, who said, "Hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well. It's the certainty that something is worth doing, no matter how it turns out." Hope is this certainty that no matter how this turns out, I'm going to remain steadfast under this trial. I'm going to remain steadfast at this moment. And I'm going to view this trial, this temptation, this situation in my life as a chance to show my love. Some of you, if you've been around Mitchell Road, you've heard me tell this story. It's been years. Uh, But the second week I met Elizabeth, uh, we were coming out of this... uh, place we were eating in uh, the college that we went to and there's this huge mulch pile like large like you know a couple stories tall that they had delivered for the whole campus and Elizabeth is right there and somebody said to me I bet you can't ride your mountain bike up that mulch pile and I thought I certainly can this is, a, this is a chance to show my love. Now, let me just tell you, young men, for some reason, you should know this early on. Women are not impressed by your athleticism. They just aren't. Most of you aren't athletic, so that doesn't help. But then if you do something that's athletic, they don't really care. I thought they did. So I wheeled my bike around and I rode that thing as fast as I could and I thought, I'm going to pop up this wheel and I'll just shoot right over this mountain not knowing that mulch is actually a pervious material. And so my whole bike went into the mulch. (laughs) And I flipped off the bike and something made it over the hill. It was me with my bike still in there, flipped over the hill, laughed at myself, covered with mulch and uh, she decided to date me for some reason. But it was a chance, that trial was a chance to show my love. At least I thought it was. At least that's how I reasoned it. This is a chance for me to show my love. When you have a trial, when you have a temptation, when you have something in your life that God is asking you to remain steadfast under, we don't say, woe is me. Oh, this is so awful. Oh, God must not like me. He must hate me. Why would he make me go through this difficult situation? We say this is, we reimagine it to say, my God has trusted me with this. My God has found me worthy to bear this. My God has deemed me capable Using his strength and the Holy Spirit to bear through this endeavor, to bear through this trial, and to bring him honor and glory, he has viewed me as a worthy servant to receive this cancer, to receive this problematic divorce, to receive this sin, to receive this struggle, to receive this, and to show him honor and glory. And I wouldn't want it any other way. I'm going to find a way under this trial to remain steadfast and to glorify him and to show this world what it means to walk by his strength and not my own. Look, when somebody in your corporation comes to you and they says, we're going to give you the nationwide account. You say, thank you so much. I'm going to make you so proud. I promise I'll take care of that client. You don't You don't whittle away. You don't say, woe is me. You don't say, why would you burden me with this extra income? You don't do that. When your coach comes to you on Thursday night and says, hey, you know what? You're going to start the game tomorrow. You say, yes, I can't believe you found me worthy of this. I'm going to go home and practice. I'm going to go home and review the plays. This is my chance. I'm going to make you proud. I'm going to find a way. Even though you know you're going to get hit, even though you know you might lose, even though you know you're going to get tackled, you say, you have considered me worthy of this calling, and I will remain steadfast under it. And so here he says, let no one say, with that context, now let no one say, when he's tempted I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. There's a couple ways that we would deal with temptation. As uh, Mark Twain says, he says, I deal with temptation by yielding to it. (laughs) That's how most of us deal with temptation, right? We get a little tempted, we struggle a little bit, and then we just yield to it, because we feel like that's the only way out. But what John Owen says, who's a better theologian, obviously, than Twain, and I don't like this quote because it's so, um, it's just uh, this scene uh, just struggles. I struggle with it. Temptation is like a knife that may either cut the meat or the throat of a man, it may be his food or his poison, his exercise or his destruction. It's just so poignant, you know, a knife on the throat just kind of gets me. But what Owen says is this, when temptation comes, you can use it uh, in this beautiful exercised way to bring glory, to cut up the meat that you're going to eat from, or you could use it for your own destruction and kill yourself in doing so. He puts it in that kind of terms. Temptation that I've found in my life typically only lasts for 10 to 12 seconds. I don't know if if you've noticed that. The temptation to gossip, the temptation to envy, uh, the temptation to covet, the temptation to lie, uh, the temptation to eat too much, the temptation to drink too much, uh, the temptation to lust, uh, the temptation for anything. If you just think about that temptation, it typically only lasts five to 10, 12 seconds. It's just a little window in time where God is saying, return to me. This is a reminder of how close you are to sin. At any given moment, there's that temptation to say that thing. There's that temptation to look at that thing. There's a temptation to act that way or to do that thing. Now return to me. Come back to me. This is just a trial. Now come back to me. Don't go down that road. And what's the road that we go down? Well, the road that we go down is this, that you would be lured, then enticed by your own desire, and then the desire, when it gives birth to sin, and then sin, when it's fully grown, brings death. And so the temptation, whenever you feel a temptation, that temptation is just a moment in time, but it wants much more than that. It wants to bring death to you, but it's going to start with just luring you, with just enticing you. When I think of that word lure, I... I, for some reason, what came to my mind was this uh, picture of tsunamis. Of all the natural disasters that exist on the face of this planet, a tsunami is the one I would least like to be in. The hurricane you can see for days away you know they're showing you the tracking you can get prepared you can flee everybody can drive somewhere everybody can get to you know Iowa uh, and you get there you're never gonna get a hurricane there the tornadoes the sirens go off but the tsunami just lures you out there have you ever seen uh, pictures of what happened in Thailand when those tsunamis happened all the people were lured where into the sea the sea receded because of something that happened way offshore, some earthquake that happened miles and miles away. The water receded, and the people lured themselves out there. They're picking up fish that are laying. They're picking up seashells, lured out there, not knowing that once they were lured into that trap, it was going to come back to buy them. And the thing about the tsunamis much like sin, is it starts so slow. If you watch those videos, the first kind of part that comes up, it's not a big wave. It kind of comes up and you think, I could get in a boat and survive survive that. But then after 30 seconds, after two minutes, after 10 minutes, the buildings for miles and miles inland are covered with water. It lures you out there and then slowly it just rises and rises and rises and rises, just like sin. It entices you Now, just think about this. What entices you? What gets you? Really, you have to do this work. What entices you? Is it things of the flesh? Is it always having to be right? Is it not being able to say you're sorry? Are are you enticed when you get fearful? Are you enticed when you get angry? Are you enticed... uh, by uh, any kind of language? What, What entices you? Think about the sin that you struggle with. Think about that sin. We've been working on this the whole time. I want you to work on at least one sin during this time while we're going through this series. Think about that sin that you struggle with. Right, you got it? Now what's behind that that entices you? And what's behind that that lures you? Because, yes, we have to ask for forgiveness and repent from that sin. But you also have to think, how did I get here? Somehow your pride was enticed. And somehow behind that you were lured to gossip about that person. You were enticed to set the record straight, whatever it is, whatever the sin, think about your sin and then use James 1 and work it back so that you would know when you feel that lure, when you feel that enticement, you would know that's the temptation and I don't have to go all the way down this road to this sin and I don't have to allow it to bring death into my life. Here's the temptation right now and God has found me worthy to say no to this. And to remain steadfast under this. We're lured, we're enticed, and then sin. Sin immediately causes shame. And so when you get to this point in the text, and you sin, what's the thing that we naturally do? We feel shame like Adam and Eve. I'm going to cover up. I can't possibly run to Christ now. I've already messed up. I might as well just enjoy it. I might as well just keep doing it because I've already messed up. I'm going to have to ask for forgiveness anyway. And then it eventually brings death. I listened to a, a lecture from a virologist from Johns Hopkins. Never would have done that in 2019. Uh, but here we are. I'm listening to lectures from Johns Hopkins virologists. And they were asking about uh, COVID. And they said, what's, what's the goal of the virus? Is the goal to kill us? Is the goal to sustain us? And uh, the virologist says it has no goal except to survive. And the only way it can survive is to have a host. And it doesn't mind killing you in the process. And just like sin, we're the host for sin. Sin wants to survive in your life, and it's going to kill you in the process, but it's going to do everything that it can to survive unless we find a way, by God's grace, to cut it out. So think about that one sin, and now, if you uh, want extra credit this afternoon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go through the rest of James, and I want you to think about the other sins that are listed here. And I want you to take this book, Before the Lord, this afternoon. It's a short book. You can read it in 10 minutes. I didn't time it, but it can't be more than 10 minutes. And I want you to walk through the sin of partiality, chapter 2, how we do works without faith, chapter 2, The taming of the tongue, chapter three. The worldliness that comes with this world. Look at what it says in 317. But the wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And ask yourself, am I those things? Or am I not those things? Am I producing, as it says in verse 18 of chapter three, a harvest of righteousness which is sowing peace in others? Am I doing that? Am I sowing peace in other people's lives? And then you look at chapter four about worldliness. And then you look at chapter four about boasting about tomorrow, what you're going to do or who you are or how good you are. And then you look at chapter five, warnings about the rich or the love of money. And you look at those things and you look at your heart and you lay it before the Lord and you say, God, have mercy on me. That's the way the Christian life works. Repentance and faith, repentance and faith, repentance and faith. And then I would add to that, and then utter joy in who God is that he loves you and knows you. So here's the second point. Don't be deceived, friends. God is good. Look at what it says, verse 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change like I've been teaching you, once we see our sin, then we come to God and we say, God, I know you're gonna forgive me because there's no shadow of change with you. You were never once forgiving and now you're not gonna be forgiving. You were never once merciful and now you're not gonna be merciful and you come back to the character of God, and you remind yourself, and you enjoy him, and you enjoy who he says in his, he is in his word, you say, okay, God, now that I've sinned, you've known this, you've known who I am, but you're kind, and you're faithful, and you're loving, and you're persevering, and you're merciful, and you're gentle with me, and you're a friend of sinners. We already sang it this morning. You say that you're a friend of sinners, and I'm a sinner, and you're my friend. So I'm coming to you, God, because you're the light of the world. Like the lights that they would show in Vietnam, that they would, those incendiaries, they, they would explode above the jungle so that people would see that enemy is right there. I had no idea. I was literally about to walk into their bayonet. So many stories in Vietnam of, of enemies in the deep, deep jungle actually bumping into each other. So they would put these lights out so you could see. Oh, there's one, there's one, there's one. This father of lights shows us where our sin is, shows us where our temptations are, shows us where the narratives are that we're not to believe so that we could then be, look at what it says in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we could be the first fruits of his creatures that the calling after remaining steadfast under sin is that we would be the first taste for this world of gospel harvest. This theme continues throughout James. I already read one verse about it in 318, where you're the harvest of righteousness, sowing peace in others. We, in this room, we're the first fruits of nutrition and joy and refreshment for this world. That's at least what we're supposed to be because we've experienced and tasted the grace of God ourselves, and that's what we're sowing rather than feeding our sins. Pastor, a pastor friend of mine told me last week, he's uh, up in Baltimore, uh, he had a couple in his church, their son was shot, drug deal gone bad, Chicago. And uh, they weren't Christians, but they had been attending his church. Instead of growing bitter, they came to him and they said this, we don't understand it and we don't know why, but we've heard you preach long enough that we know God is sovereign and this didn't happen without a reason. How do we become Christians? Christians. So he led them to the Lord. Because their son was shot, they were led to the Lord. Fast forward six months. They go to the trial in Chicago, and the person who shot their son is convicted and thrown into prison. They're at the airport flying out of Chicago. And in the line uh, for getting on the plane, in the line in front of them are the parents of the guy who shot their son. So they tapped him on the shoulder, turned around, stunned, not knowing what was going to happen. Is this going to be a fist fight. And they said, we just want you to know we forgive you. And we forgive your son. And we have no animosity for you at all. And they hugged and they embraced. And then the other couple said, why would you do this? And you know what they said? They said, we're Christians now and this is apparently what you do. (laughs) we're christians now and apparently we forgive that's what christians do we forgive people we don't we don't hold it against them then for the next year those two couples worked together to petition the courts to get their son who killed their son out of prison and they were successful because as they said we lost our son there's no reason you need to lose your son too So they work to petition the courts to get their son's killer out of prison because as Christians, that's just what you do. The first fruits of creation. People who know sin and know temptation and know it for ourselves, who aren't just pointing the fingers at everybody else, what everybody else is doing wrong, but know our sin and know our temptation and know how sin kills us and meet that with gospel fruit of sharing God's love and kindness because with him there's no variation or shadow of change. I'm gonna to give to you at the end just two closing narratives because as Cornelius Van Til, he's an old theologian who was known for presuppositionalism and many other things. I've studied Van Til for a number of years. He said, you realize that if you're to change your belief about God, you will also Have to change your belief about yourself. And what you think about God is probably the most important thought that runs through your head. But what you think about God, if you think He's loving and He's kind and there's no shifting of shadows with Him, don't be deceived, He is good and every good and perfect gift comes from above, then that will change how you think about yourself. So, how do you think about yourself? Let's go back to the very beginning. What are the narratives running through your mind, running through your heart that you believe that aren't true? And let me give you two new ones, one that you're going to hear soon enough, that you're one day going to meet the Lord himself. And if you're like me, I'm I'm probably going to spend the first 100 years groveling. I'm so sorry. I could have done better. I mean, that's just my propensity. But you know what he's going to say? I'm pretty sure he's gonna say, oh Andy, knock it off. I got something to say to you. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's the narrative that all of us need to believe that with these pervious lives that we live, tempted by sin, where we all feel like we could have done better, The Lord himself is going to look at us and say, it's all covered by my grace. It's all been covered by my loving kindness. It's all, all of your deficiencies have been covered with my sovereign plan. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And then the second narrative that you need to hear sooner rather than later is this. This is my son. This is my daughter with whom I am well pleased. Because of the work of Christ on our behalves, it is possible by faith to live this way in this world to please God. That we could actually this week as we live our lives, we're not just getting by this week, that we could live our lives in such a, a way that we would hear the Lord himself say to our tired souls, This is my son, this is my daughter, and I am well pleased with you this week. You were so steadfast. You trusted me, you enjoyed me, you followed me. Well done. I saw a um, thing on Instagram, I guess. I'm not sure where it was. Not TikTok, I'm not on TikTok, so it must have been Instagram. And it was uh, John Legend who, if I had any, if I could be given one gift in this world, it would be to be able to sing like John Legend. I'm just enamored by him. And uh, John Legend was uh, having a concert somewhere up north, and there was a street performer. And the street performer, and he walked by, and somebody had the video. The street performer was singing his song. So he stopped at the crowd and then you can see the video and then he steps out of the crowd and he takes off his mask while she's still playing his song. Now just imagine that if you're a street performer and you're playing the song of, a, of somebody that you love and then they show up and they're there and you're singing their song. You'd be filled obviously with like, am I doing this well? He could do it so much better. This is his song. This is my, not my song. I missed that note. Oh my goodness, I'm a little bit flat. I missed that chord. You know, your brain would just be firing. As soon as she got done, he immediately went up to her, gave her a big hug, and said, you did a phenomenal job with that song. And I thought, that's what Christ does with us. He wants us to sing his song of holiness, his song of love, his song of obedience, his song of faithfulness. And yeah, we don't sing it as well as he does. He's the one that wrote it. But we get out there and we play it, and we get out there and we perform it, and even if we can't do it, and even though we're not as holy as Christ is, Christ watches us. And at the end of the day, he embraces us and he says, great job singing my song. You're my son, you're my daughter and with you I am well pleased. Father, we pray that you would help us be steadfast. We're gonna find temptation and sin this week. We're gonna have moments where we're Don't think we're up to it, and we're not. We need your strength. But may we consider ourselves a worthy servant to be asked to bear whatever trial you bring to us. And then may we not be deceived into thinking that you're not a good God who gives good gifts. So now, with whatever comes our way, as we look at our sin, as we fight it, as we look through the whole epistle of James and analyze our hearts, may we also run to you and hear you create those new narratives in our heart and in our souls. May we live out of those instead of the narratives of our sinfulness. We pray in your name, amen.